Welcome to the Five Fundamental Podcast. I am your host, Shane Hayes, and coming up on this episode, the documentary filmmaker Michael Epstein, director of Final Cut, The Making and Unmaking of Heaven's Gate, is here to discuss the various cuts of Heaven's Gate. You got it. We're talking four different cuts of the three and a half hour movie. But first, what I watched this week, uh, I recorded a bunch of episodes this week, which entailed watching four cuts of a three and a half hour movie, but also a bunch of reading and other stuff coming up. So I didn't get to watch much unrelated to future episodes. The only thing I actually watched this week unrelated was I finally got around to Mike Nichols film Silkwood, which we talked about a little on the Mike Nichols commentary episode very, very briefly. Mark Harris's new book, Mike Nichols, uh, A Life. I've seen in interviews, Mark Harris has said he thinks Silkwood is one of Nichols' best movie movies and is definitely interesting, obviously. it's uh, it, it got Oscar nominations in its day and it has a very unaffected, um, doesn't have the high-class sheen that Nichols normally puts in puts in his filmmaking so that aspect was definitely interesting i know harris in particular has lamented we on this on this show we constantly have the physical versus streaming debate and he pointed out that silkwood isn't available for streaming right now i had to it took me a while to get what i have still have a lingering uh, netflix dvd rental thing from dvd.com or and even then it was a long wait so it took a while to get um, all this is going to say, still buy physical if you can, but the story of the week I found interesting was the Hollywood Reporter expose on Scott Rudin. And uh, if you haven't read it yet, I mean, there's a vibe that when the headline came out, at least on Twitter was like a jokey non-surprise at the rumors around Scott Rudin were true or um, when I started reading this, reading it, there's details about one intern staffer who got seriously injured when a computer was thrown at him. And I remembered I've known two friends over the years who have worked for Scott Rudin, and I remember one of them actually told me, I don't, they told it to me in an innocuous way, and this is what they told me. So this isn't verbatim truth. Obviously, this is just what was relay to me but the computer story sounded very similar happened to them but only a little more innocent and innocuous but i think there was i i, I misremember the story too but i think there was a destroyed computer at some to, some point going a long way to say that one of the things that i thought of immediately was that didn't get enough play was the statement from when harvey weinstein first started going down his the weinstein company snaffers wrote a collective statement that was supposedly from 30 company members unsigned specifically, but there's a passage in there that stuck with me that I wanted to read right now. This is from the statement. As we begin the painful process of reflecting on our industry and the ugly systems we've wrought and let thrive, we are asking ourselves the question, how do we define abuse? Do we include verbal degradation, ruthless aggression, and physical intimidation? This particular horror show centers on a sexual predator who abused his power in a very specific way. But if we're being honest, and if not now, when, we all know that threatening, hostile, inhumane work environments are rampant in our industry. Non-disclosure agreements only perpetuate this culture of silence. 
The, if you can't stand the heat, get out of the kitchen mentality undermines those who might have spoken out. We treat these abusive people and places as rites of passage instead of with the disgust they deserve. And with that, we are now moving on to discuss the great giant project full of folly, the amazing movie that I'm not sure too many people have seen. And when they do see it, they treat it as a rite of passage in of itself, which I don't know how to tell you you're missing out on something. If you, if, if you, if you can manage not to look at this movie as a chore, this really is one of the greatest movies ever made. We are now talking Heaven's Gate. Was Final Cut your second movie? At least it's listed on IMDb in that. Oh place, no, but. no. So I had come out of Michigan, you know, thinking I wanted to do movies. I mean, that was it. And I moved thinking, you know, I'll, I'll do documentary for a little bit, but I really want to transfer over to narrative, which has not yet happened. <laughs> um, but I left school with a with a film in mind, uh, based on uh, Pauline Kael's book about citizen kane which huh. uh, is yeah. that has, has anything happened with that lately so it's my academy award nomination actually i made a documentary about it uh called the battle over citizen kane which ridley which ridley scott optioned uh which is our, our ko 281 281 right yeah we which was we did an we- episode on raising kane actually did you oh yeah. i've been you know so i i have a documentary which for a while was the bonus dvd uh, of Citizen Kane. Called okay, yeah, I'm, I'm familiar with that is because that has that cool Roger Ebert commentary on the actual movie too, right? Yeah, exactly. So there was, was like a couple of years ago. So I, I think it was I forget it was when Turner owned the rights to to the film and they released a DVD. So my film oh, with Tom, Tom Lennon, who I meant, who was my mentor for six years. I mean, Tom was the driving force behind that too. Um, and Richard Ben Kramer, who's no longer with us, but uh, Tom was the director, and along with me, the lead director, I should say. And uh, you know, it told the story of Hearst and Wells and Mankiewicz, and um, and then Ridley Scott bought it and made a film with Leah Schreiber, which was based on nothing that I could tell from the documentary or from anything. <laughs> it was just they just made it up as they went along. And shocker, yeah. Yeah, and then uh, uh, you know now Fincher's got his movie out. That, that was that was the joke I was going with. So if if film school wasn't initially in the cards, but you initially jumped into medium about movies, were you a big movie person growing up? Yeah, yeah. You know, I'm like the guy that you know rented the sixteen. I mean, I'm old, so uh, uh, you know we would have to rent this is you know i I remember getting the first vhs player like that my dad brought home okay and it was the size of of our kitchen table it was just so huge but the idea that you could see movies on demand it was like it blew my mind um but i you know i'm the guy that watched harold and maude 16 17 times in high school over and over and over again and would rent the 16 millimeter print and and at Michigan one of the really really great things um, that I I remember incredibly fondly 
uh, we had a core group of friends and there were film societies all over school, all over the campus and multiple ones. And they would have a booklet that every film society would say, oh, on Friday night we're showing this Bergman movie or this Woody Allen movie or, you know, whatever it is. And we would sit down and we would try to figure out where we're going to go and see. And we would see two, three, four time movies a weekend um, Hmm. at Michigan. Yeah, we were real. We just loved it. Um, Do you, I mean, did Heaven's Gate, would you have been in college when Heaven's Gate came out or? Uh, no, I'm not that old. Thank God. Uh, no, I was not, I was in Cheers. middle school. Uh, so Heaven's Gate came out in what, 80, right? Yeah. Yeah. But although so, I'm, I'm still unsure about what it's like wide release was or if it really ever had one. Didn't really have one, right? I, I mean, it, that's what I get. So the short version, I think, had a wide-ish release. They pulled it right away. They pulled it right away. They had such a disastrous premiere. Yeah, I mentioned in my emails to you earlier, I just watched um, three cuts of the movie in three days, and including just finally, I think I saw the theatrical version for the first time today. Yeah. But so when did you first, when did you first finally see it? I must have seen it as some bastardized VHS at some point and thought it was terrible. Okay. Right? Yeah. Um, it seems to be a lot of people's first reaction. Yeah, you know, it it just doesn't work. Uh it has a short film. Like <laughs> it's not a it's not a short story. And that version, you know, it's it's a funny thing too. Um sometimes movies work when you're immersed in them in a movie theater. And you know, watching it four three at an old S D thing with a VHS with the vertical tracking not working is is just not the great way to watch that film or McCabe and Mrs. Miller or just any of these great pictures. I'm glad you yeah. mentioned McCabe and Mrs. Miller. I, I, I find like there's a few poetic, long, expensive Westerns that I find this is a genre of and, yeah. or, or in case of like where McCabe and Mrs. Miller are this ones with like really hard to hear audio tracks where the dialogue is obscured, but they're also shot by Vilmos Zygmunt through a lot of filters and very pretty. Right. right. Um, he flashed the film, I think, in that neg- that he flashed the negative for that one. Yeah, I think. Yeah. Um, uh, and I, you know, I put this with the same category. There were a whole host of films at that time, and I do remember going to the movie theater with my dad uh, to see Reds and just being completely blown away by Reds. I mean, still to this day, it's one of my absolute favorite films. I mean, I that's just, that's a movie that we brought up a, a many, many times yeah. on here. It, that's a favorite of mine too. I just love, love, love that movie. And um, and I think Heaven's Gate is something in that same, well, it's almost within the same couple of years, right? Right. Uh, and the same feel, the same idea of immersive history. Um, I don't think, you know. So at some point I went back and I started looking at it and I became friends with Stephen Bach. Um, and... Uh, one of my very, very best friends uh, growing up and still to this day had read Final Cut and he like put it in my hands and he was like, you're going to love this book. And so I loved Stephen's book. And then I met Stephen and, and he was he was a great, great guy. He was really mm. a wonderful man. That's nice he was, to hear. He was kind and generous and really thoughtful and smart. He taught at Columbia and he... I had made, well, I had made the battle over Citizen Kane for 
uh, PBS uh, with Tom. And then I went independent and I made a film about the transition from the Hollywood studio system to the auteur theory of filmmaking. Okay. Um, through the creative relationship of David O. Selznick and Alfred Hitchcock, because people forget or didn't know that Hitchcock came over to America as a contract player to Selznick. And Selznick um, has that really great book of memos that just came out of, oh, like, yeah. like 20 years ago, I think. Right. I mean, Selznick was just this crazy, tragic, pill popping lunatic of a guy. On Benzedrine, just watching cuts over and over and giving notes. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, really, the guy who could not escape his success. He, he was just completely overwhelmed and burdened by how big Gone with the Wind was. And, you know, I always made, it always fascinated me about like someone like James Cameron or Steven Spielberg, who kind of moved on from Titanic and made something bigger. Right. I mean, whatever you think of Avatar, it was like, right, right. You know, he, that was not the last thing he did. And, and there, there's always does seem, I don't know how Spielberg works with this because he was such a big director so young, but Cameron, you know, has his early years of poverty and they always say don't have success yeah. too early. Yeah. Like you need a little few years of humility involved. Right. And, you know, he had, uh, films that didn't work in between. So he, he had things like aliens that was a big box office success in the Terminator's franchise. But, you know, was it the, the Abyss? The, is the, the, abyss. the theatrical yeah. version of The Abyss is uh, yeah. something. I mean, yeah. I, yeah. I'm, right. The special edition I'm, I'm a fan of. Um, I agree. So we're, um, okay, so you, going, your, your feelings on Heaven's Gate still to this day is that you don't think it works? Oh, no, no, no. So eventually I got to see the long version. Of okay. It. And I, I love so much of it. I think it's a very misunderstood film and an unfairly derided film. And, you know, for me, I would rather watch an interesting mistake than a boring success. I would rather watch a film that takes incredible risks and has real vision than something that's just kind of like easy, you know, innocuous that's that's studio fair or, you know, consciously commercial. And Heaven's Gate, to me, is just one high wire act after another. Three and a half thing, hours of yeah. high wire act. Um, you know, I think it's I think it's bloated at times. I, I've never liked the Harvard opening. I think that the the end on the boat doesn't work well. But there are moments in it that just blow my mind. Um, and some of the writing, a lot of the acting, um, and Vilmos's cinematography is... Um, yeah. Among the most remarkable, I think, cinematography in any any film ever. I mean, David Lean level, brilliant.
I think there's a period where Zygman in the 70s is just unparalleled. Like, he's just yeah. one movie that you need to buy a Blu-ray or a print of to watch over and over, and a restored one. Because, yeah. like, the fade, like, especially you mentioned the flashing earlier when it fades, but, like, it, you just, you get it restored and, and, and crisp. Um, yeah, that was I'll, actually, I can say, like, there were a few real highlights when I made the documentary uh, one of them was going to a Starbucks with Vilmosh in Santa Monica because I had reached out to him and I was like, look, I'm doing this thing. Michael's not helping. I don't know if I can do this without you. And he was the nicest man you can't ever imagine. I mean, he was just, he came out to Starbucks. We sat and we talked for like two hours and, you know, he, he we talked about how much we loved the movie and his technique. And then he said to me, you know, I have all these Polaroids. Because back in the day, that was the only way they could. That's your light meter. That was your light meter, right. And he had a book of like hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of Polaroid images, which effectively track the entire movie, including like tons of stuff from behind the scenes. Wow. And I was like, I would love to see them. And he said, you can have them. <laughs> I was like, what? Have them? Well, you know, use them. I couldn't own them, so I I took them and I and I put them on a flatbed or a drum scanner. I brought them into some place and spent thousands and thousands of dollars scanning all these Polaroid images and putting them on a drive and gave Vilmosh a dr- copy of the drive and 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 his originals back. And that that was the only way I could make um, the documentary. Did you ever end up um, talking to Chimino or Joanne Corelli? I talked to Joanne a couple times, but never to Michael. I could never penetrate. Like Michael. not even email or a friendly, I'm not interested? Everything was communicated through Joanne. So I reached Uh-oh. out to Joanne and I talked to Joanne and spoke to her quite a bit. And and what I said to them was, you know, I I love this movie and I and I want it to be reconsidered. You know, I think you were unfairly maligned. The film's framed in the worst possible light, you know, as a flop that that sunk a studio, which is technically not true. Yeah, yeah, I, I hate that narrative, but yeah, whatever. Um, and at the time, uh, a gentleman who's no longer with us, Bingham Ray, was the head of MGM. And I met with Bingham, my producer, and I did. And he's like, I love this idea because, you know, MGM owned the print and we really didn't feel like we could make the documentary without their permission because we didn't want to make it without showing the movie, right? Clips from the film, right? which are insanely expensive. I mean, there's a, there's a reason why you don't see more documentaries about Hollywood movies because they're just you have to do the director's guild and then all the actors and then you got to pay for the clips. I mean, each, each minute can cost as much as $10,000 right? hmm. um, back then. To do you, is it, is it a case where you want to get a studio on your side to say, I want to revitalize this for, and it's a home video title maybe that you might be able to. Yeah. So uh, that's what happened. Bingham was like, that's great. And he called up uh, a guy named John Kirk who was running the MGM restoration department. And John was like, Oh my God, I've wanted to do a restoration of heaven's gate since I arrived. His name's come up in some of the stuff I've read too. Yeah, he's a really great guy. Um, 
And John and I started to work together. And so he did a full restoration of Heaven's Gate um, while and really for the documentary. And then, and then Bingham got fired. And I didn't have anything in writing. I just had this handshake with Bingham and, you know, I thought it was all okay because John was doing a big restoration. And as what I, time, time period is this? Oh my God. 2004, maybe. Is, is like that, that when the, um, is that when the MGM DVD came out or this would came out right after would have come out from, from the John Kirk restoration. Exactly. Exactly. Okay. So when that DVD, that was, I was the spark of that. I was, nice. it was, and and even Michael wouldn't at that point um, participate in the film. I was like, I, I got your film fucking restored, dude. Right. <laughs> Give me an interview. Um, and and as I joke, uh, a pharaoh arose who who know, knew not Joseph and MGM <laughs> just said, uh, we have nothing to do with this documentary. Screw you. Uh, whatever deal you had with Bingham is a no, we're not honoring it. And it just, it, it was a nightmare. We finally solved it, but I was never able to afford uh, my own DVD release because the film, they allowed me to use the film clips for broadcast and, and we broadcast it on a digital platform. Called Is this Trio. on Oxygen? Was it on? It was called Trio. Okay, okay. Yeah. I, I was trying I mean, to remember. So long gone. Yeah. And you know who was the executive of it, oddly enough? He was a great guy, Andy Cohn of Bravo. Okay. Wow. That, yeah. it, wow. There's a lot of circularity there. Um, so, okay. Let me, let me, going into my history with Heaven's Gate, um, I think I came to Final Cut first, the book. And I think book. a lot of people did. I certainly did. Okay. Okay. That's not an unfamiliar path. Good to know. Um, it has that pull quote on the cover for Pauline Kale. That's, that's very alluring. And I got maybe a few pages in and I was like, okay, I should see the movie. And I feel like the DVD had, this doesn't fit the timeline. Cause I think it's like around 2000, 2001. I don't know if I found a VHS of it, but, um, I, I would think it may, maybe it was the DVD. I don't remember. And I remember watching it and thinking, I, like it was an accomplishment that I watched it. Like I felt like I read a read a really long book, and yeah. you know, like a book that like is worth it. Um, but it was a long book, and I didn't really think much about it throughout the years. I finished the book. I love the book. Stephen Bach is for someone who's telling all these like cool behind the scenes Hollywood stories. Just as a like stylist, he's such a great writer, and he's yeah. you know it's nice to know that what you were saying about him personally two jibes with this too. He just seems like an observant, very sophisticated uh, sensibility. And that was Steven. Very much Steven. There's so much good stuff in the book, just in general about not related to heaven's gate. I mean, there's great film history. There's great MGM history. I love the ra um, raging bull anecdotes throughout the story. Yeah. Like the whole one of uh, De Niro, like defending raging bull and being like, Jake LaMotta is not a cockroach. Story, like there's so many little tiny stories, uh, you know, just sprinkled in. Anyway, and so throughout the years, I tried to watch more Chimino, but I've always avoided Deer Hunter. And the first one I watched that I liked was Thunderbolt and Lightfoot, which was okay. It's it's short. It's charming. It's it's unchallenging. Eastwood's great in it. It's an but, Eastwood movie, really. Yeah, and it's Eastwood in its peak period to where right. like it makes sense. 
Um, and Jeff Bridges is pretty good in that movie too. Yeah, yeah, and Jeff Bridges in the seventies, especially like he's always good. I don't remember much of Year in the Dragon. Uh, I watched Desperate Hours a few years ago and remember nothing of it. I have yeah. never seen Sun Chaser. I have uh, the director's cut of Sicilian. I held out on the Sicilian because one of the other suppose you know big, which is at the end of the of, of Final Cut. The Z Channel documentary talks about how they push the longer cut, at least in Los Angeles. And in there, FX Feeney talks up the Sicilian director's cut that he, like, there's a story in that documentary where they flew to Paris to watch it just because, and they talked about how witty the movie was. It's, it's okay. But it, really what it was, was I finally sat down and watched a HD version of Deer Hunter in my old setup when I was a projectionist. We used to put like cable network, HD cable networks onto the digital projectors when we had the first digital projectors. And we watched a copy of Deer Hunter, which I'd never seen. And not only that movie just take me away and captivate me, but yeah. in some ways I feel the wedding like scene. It, the wedding scene. The wedding sequence. And the wedding sequence and how hypnotic and great filmmaking is and how long it is, but how much I mean, one of the things that I really noticed this last few viewings of Chimino stuff that when he makes these long bloated movies is he gives so much time that Storytellers want to typically go for conflict. Chimino goes towards seeing these people happy and sees them in joy because he wants yeah. to do this Adenic stuff that's going to show whenever the tragedy happens or whenever violence happens, how sad it is that it happens to him. But he loves to watch these people happy. Deer Hunter taught me how to watch Heaven's Gate. And to be fair, I, I didn't jump right away to watch Heaven's Gate again. It wasn't until the Criterion release. But And I think... I don't know. Do you have an opinion that the Criterion release might have like brought more people onto Heaven's Gate or the Heaven's Gate bandwagon? Well, I think you know, you know. There's you mentioned the L.A. Z Channel, right? The the which is the iconic public access channel for people who don't know. They, yeah, I think, they were the yeah. ones that they were the original outlet for the long version. I think that the long version was basically lost until they programmed it I believe. and the um z channel documentary is a great documentary yeah. and a very sad documentary too but yeah um anyway so you know i think the thing about uh, heaven's gate is that it had a couple of these moments where it gets reclaimed z- the first being z channel in la and then eventually you know john does his restoration which does okay i don't think it's really I don't think it changes the narrative very much at all. Um, uh, our film and Mike's and Michael's film uh, was at Film Forum in New York at the same time. So I had a theatrical release along with uh, Heaven's Gate. And our review was great for us and terrible for Heaven's Gate. I think it was still, they still couldn't break the narrative. That it was they couldn't get past the New York critics is what you're saying? Yeah. And it really broke my heart. I mean, I was happy that I got a good review, but it was like, I think the line was something like 10 times or three times more exciting than the movie that it's about or whatever. I was just like, fuck, I was terrible. I was really upset. But the Criterion Collection really, I think, put a certain good housekeeping stamp on the film, as it were, saying like, this is art and this is worth your time. And it's interesting that you say that the deer hunter taught you how to watch heaven's gate because you know, there are, I think it's harder and harder to watch movies in some ways lately. 
right? You have your phone sometimes like, or you, yeah. you get distracted. Uh, unless you're in a movie theater, right? But even in a movie theater, you still have your phone um, or you have your distractions. And it's a very ADHD kind of filmmaking era, I think, in a lot of ways. Um, and, you know, I, I read a lot of different things. Sometimes I'll read a magazine. Sometimes I'll read Twitter. And sometimes I'll read a novel. And I and I want different things creatively and in terms of storytelling from the medium right a novel should have those digressions and those kind of emotional more depth say right than a short story right most of the time and i i look at heaven's gate as a novel as a is a really very novelistic experience yes and if totally. you go in expecting a video game you're just not going to like it right um but it's an it's a breathtaking russian novel as i always sort of see it I think we're we're well in. Do we need to go over the plot of the movie? I think anyone listening to this needs like they have to have seen this by this point. Like I, it's it's on this. If you can do the plot, I mean, I think that that was part. Of, I think that was part of Stephen Bach's problem. Like, what what is this movie actually about? Um, right? Cattle ranchers and. Well, I mean, the basics are that uh, it's based on the historical incident of the Johnson County War, and it's a love triangle involving uh, Chris Christopherson playing. Um, um, a, a guy from Harvard 20 years later, who's now a marshal of Johnson County. Um, there's um, uh, Nate Champion, played by Christopher Walken, who is w- w- the Homestead Act. Uh, you know, allowed uh, all these ranchers to get to have access to land. And I guess in in the East, there was this like land grab at that where. Cattle was a very big uh, money maker, especially not right. just in the East but overseas. And a lot of immigrants who are coming over to places in the West through the Homestead Act, um, there was all these accusations of uh, stealing cattle and things like that. Some sometimes legitimate, and so this um, Eastern uh, what do you want to call it? Con- conglomerate. It's class of war. It's a film about class war and yeah. resources. They, 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 they cl- they declare war on um uh they make a death list of uh 150 or 50 people and um th- with the sanction of the Wyoming government and the president of the United States and it's three and a half hours of Chris Christopherson periodically mentioning there's a death wish or there's a death yeah. list in between being drunk and then like they dance you know or something else something else nice happens right they do play roller roller skates and what happens roller skates um brad brad dorif about the roller skating practice was particularly great um well, yeah you you mentioned box uh uh um description of the plot he so i want to say early in the book he describes um I guess the script, the, when it was still called the Johnson County War, it was an old script of Chimino's that was one of the things he wrote very early when he was starting his film career as this thing that was the movie you're supposed to make after you get your success. And although it's funny in the book, uh, originally he wanted to make uh, The Fountainhead, which, yeah, yay history, he didn't make. And um, But telling, but really telling. 
Look, the thing, uh, the, you know, the, one of the things that people should know about the making of this film, which I find, I find it as fascinating as the film, actually more fascinating, frankly, than the film itself, right? Because it's a kind of story of Icarus. Stephen talked about, and, and Michael, you know, Michael came out of advertising. That was his training. Mm-hmm. And he spent an enormous amount of time, as one does in advertising, making sure that the product looks perfect and really in a lot of ways there is no ceiling to how much the company is willing to spend to make you know the underwear or the bottle of scotch look absolutely pristine and then he came in as a writer and then he worked under uh with thunderbolt and lightfoot under clint eastwood who really was in control of that set michael was the director but he also co-wrote uh magnum force with uh john milius too right so he got to start with Clint Eastwood, and then he went off and did The Deer Hunter, and that 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 film was made for Universal, and it was really hated by the studio. The studio saw a cut of The Deer Hunter and freaked out and took it away from Michael and edited it down from three and a half hours to like an hour and a half. And um, there was a huge fight, and Michael convinced the studio to test screen both prints, their print, their short cut, and his long cut. And test audiences hated the studio cut and loved Michael's long cut. And, and then that long cut went on to sweep the Oscars. Michael got Best Director, I think Best Screenplay. I know Best Picture, um, he I, there was some he rewrote the screenplay and then I think there's some like argument over uh, a st- um, credit on that where yeah. yeah but basically the narrative for Michael was that the deer hunter validated that he was always right and the studio was always wrong and this was like in the middle of they were near finalizing uh, or they they pretty much UA had already decided to make the movie at this point and they were near finalizing not yet no what I mean. When when the Deer Hunter did so well, Michael became the the director in Hollywood, and everybody came to him. And at that point, the people who had started UA, well, not started, but who had made UA really great in the seventies, Arthur Krim in particular, who had, and you know, you're talking about Woody Allen and Scorsese and Coppola. And, I mean, you know, the conversation was made there and. Apocalypse to a lesser now. extent, uh, Richard Lester's mentioned a bunch in the book. Yeah, um, I mean, they got the Bond movies, right? So the Bond movies, which really I I think are like the future of Hollywood, right? So if you think about like Hollywood history, this is in a moment where the director is the center of the universe, and where you wouldn't go see, I don't know, we to, now we don't really go see actors, right? We go see characters, but you know, once upon a time, a star, Tom Cruise or whatever, could open mm-hmm. a movie. Julia Roberts. You know, this is in a moment when when a director could open a movie. You went to see a Francis Ford Coppola film or a Scorsese film, you know, and now you're going to see a Michael Cimino movie. And Krim left because he got in a fight with the corporate overlords. And Transamerica. they got bought by Transamerica. Yeah, okay. Right. And Krim left to go start a studio called Orion. Um. And Woody Allen went with him went over to Orion, and a bunch of other people left. And so Stephen Bach and a guy named David Field, who were both, 
you know, kind of nobodies, right? They hadn't really any experience. They were all of a sudden in charge of the most storied or one of the most storied independent the one, studio. the one studio that was created by creatives. It was right. It was a Chaplin, Griffith, uh, Mary Pickford, and Douglas Fairbanks. Yeah, and it was the studio. If you were, you know, a filmmaker, you wanted to be. You know, it was the place that said, "Here's your budget. So long as you don't go over budget, we don't give a fuck. Go, go make your film. We'll see you when you're done." Right, and um, I mean, who doesn't like that? You know, the the the. The, the downside was you didn't have a, as much money maybe as you did somewhere else, but you had you had creative and artistic freedom. So they go to Michael and they figure they're going to make their name. They're going to get the it guy coming right off the Oscar. They're going to stake their claim to continuing to be a home for filmmakers. And they're going to do that with Michael Cimino and they give him carte blanche. And he goes off to make the Johnson County War and destroys everyone's career. The the funniest thing I love about the book is how it details the very small, tiny flaw in their strategy that no one could have foreseen, but they didn't have a Christmas movie for 1979. Yeah. And so they make this like uh, clause that gives him a little bit of money, extra money, without restriction or the normal director overage restrictions where if you go over budget it comes out of profit participation or whatever your fees are things like that they waive it for him and chimino just spends money like especially for the first half of the shoot for the first like three months of the shoot that's only like a, a, a three was it a, a 12 week shoot i think or something like that like a drunken sailor he was 14 days over budget or over schedule or whatever, 10 days into production. So 10 days in, he was 14 days over. Well, okay, here's one point I, I think that it's, it's, it's interesting in the story behind the making of this, but when you watch this movie now, I've, I've used this quote before. A friend of mine, when we were working on a movie, we were got, we got in, uh, there was a big debate over the mu- music cue, and the producer came at him about how expensive the music cue was going to, cost but they were talking about how everyone agreed it was going to be a great music cue and my friend very sarcastically said you know in a hundred years you know what they're going to say they're going to look at it at how this movie came in on budget right right like when you look at even bach mentions in the book multiple times you see all the movie on the the money on screen oh yeah michael didn't pocket anything there's there's no fraud here i don't want to you know yeah he, he was obsessed with making a brilliant film and he did and Bach even mentions multiple times, like he goes to these technical people working on the movie. Everyone agrees this movie's very efficiently made. It's just that there's many takes on perfection and waiting for different, different, you know, cloud cover or different weather or that was my favorite. This, but the, the painterliness of this movie shows, and oh, I just oh my god, yeah. I mean that that's the thing that shot that, after shot after shot is yeah. a work of art. Absolutely. You know, my favorite, um, Penny Sylvester. So I don't know if you know Penny Sylvester. Mm. She was the assistant editor in post, and then she was on set as Michael's, one of Michael's assistants. So she was the only person or one of like a very, very few handful of people who, who saw the production of Heaven's Gate through production and post-production. 
she went through the whole thing with Michael. I always say the assistant editor is the person to like knows where all the bur- the bodies are buried. So yeah, and she was the most fun I've ever had in an interview. She she was great, and she was she was she is uh, she's still with us. Robert Shaw's daughter. Um, really? Yeah. Right, and she was great. So she was there on set this one day, and you know. All of the extras have to get made up, so they're showing up, and we can talk about. I mean, there's some of these things are just these stories are madness. What he put everybody through to get to these breathtaking images, because they don't. There's no, there's no effects, right? There's no. Yeah. <laughs> there's there's no green screen. Um, it's all practical stuff on, and everybody's underwear is is period specific and their socks and everything um but anyway everybody was on set one day and he didn't like the way the cloud cover was and he knew what was coming and and phil motion was like michael everybody's hungry we need to break for lunch because you know they had been there for like seven eight hours and michael just turned him like he was crazy and he said lunch lunch are you crazy? You know, in 10 years, nobody's going to be talking about lunch. They're going to be talking about the cloud in this shot that we're going to get. And we're going to wait until we get it. And three hours later, they got it. And they went like way, way over that day. But they shot like, I don't know, like what ended up being like a minute of film for the cloud cover. I think of that. Okay. Um, so there's the, the, there's different iterations between the Criterion version and what I guess you would call the premiere cut. And the most notable thing is that the intermission is taken out of the premiere cut. Yeah. The first shot, at, well, I know I, I looked up Glenn Erickson's review of this and he pointed out that he missed the intermission, which I agreed with him just because it, it ends with that great shot oh of God. John Hurd doing his poetry on the horse where the smoke comes in and somehow after the smoke comes by, he disappears and it goes into intermission. How great is that shot? How amazing is that? But then the shot going after intermission is just, I, the, 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 you you see the cloud moving over. It's when, um, the, I forget the Irish, uh, the, 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 the man that's the, um, the, the, not the postmaster, but he's the, uh, uh, the man in charge with the trains. Right, right, right. He's sleeping underneath I don't understand why he's sleeping underneath that wood, except he's running to warn people. And, oh my God, the next three shots are all wides that take a really long amount of time, but you just see the cloud moving. And yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah Film is right. forever. And you think like, thank God he did that. I mean, I, you know, because you don't really worry about lunch. Uh, did they get their lunch break? Um the making of our good stories, you know, Brad Dorif, who is an act, who's a great actor. Um, he talked about how the place that they picked for the final battle sequence right at the end was a three-hour car ride from Collispell. Um, right. So there's this battle sequence which takes like what 40 minutes in the movie at the end i mean and then and in the early cuts they said it was like a 90 minute version in the five oh, hour version no 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 it was it was it, steven told me that after all the cost overruns 
after all the bad publicity, which I think really, Stephen's failure to manage publicity or the Hollywood press is what cost the movie. That, that's, I, I, that totally makes sense. Right. And, you know, I think one of the interesting things about COVID is we've stopped talking about box office. You, you know one big note I had? When was the last time you heard someone complain about the most expensive movie yeah. of all time? Who it probably would have been Avatar, right? Yeah. And, like, it's not my money. Like, why, do, why, why does everybody care about how much a movie costs? Like... The thing that rereading Stephen Stephen Box book really I found I found a ton of things quaint, but um, the obsessive you mentioned earlier UA was a smaller studio that gave everyone control, but you may not have access to money. But the numbers he was throwing, so the the narrative always goes the Easy Rider Raging Bull narrative is that uh, these directors went out of control and spent too much money, and the American New Wave of the seventies had to end because. They spent they too gonna, much money. Right. But in when in this rereading, I found it fascinating. He keeps bringing up inflation. And he keeps talking about how they did a Bond movie for a certain, like, like 11 million or 15 million. And like three years later, they do another budget. And because of inflation, um, the budget goes up to like 19 million or 20 million. And I find it fascinating that inflation seems to have killed American politics and killed the American film yeah. in the 70s, both in the 70s, just to c- give a counteractive to that narrative. People forget, man, inflation was insane in the late 70s, right? I mean, it wasn't quite Buenos Aires, but you know, until mm. Paul Volcker killed inflation in the early 80s. Um, the Volcker rule. The Volcker with, you know, where I think Prime, which was the what the banks charge each other, right, or what the Fed charges banks, was like 13 or 14%, which means people got mortgages that were like 23, 24% was the mortgage on your house. Wow. Right? More than your credit card today. And that killed, that killed inflation and it never came back. But the thing for me that always, I mean, like Moonraker was, was, was a potential debacle. There was all of these runaway budgets at the time. They, uh, he mentions at one point a bunch of movies going around the time that were huge budgets that were had grown exponentially. He mentions 1941, Blues yeah. Brothers, The Wiz, Star Trek The Motion Picture, Race the Titanic, and as we mentioned earlier, Reds. Yeah. So all of these movies just go completely haywire. And, you know, look, I, I really disagree with the Raging Bull notion that the director's cost overruns sunk the director-driven model. What Hollywood is always about uh, putting a dollar in and wanting to get five dollars out, right? And, mm-hmm. You know, it's it's about finding the sure bet. And so, if you go back far enough. The studio, the studio system was a sure bet. You make a movie, you you have vertical integration, you own the theaters, you you make your money by the time it gets out of the movie theater and you're done. And by the late 60s, they had to divest from their movie theaters, right? And so they have to actually make films that people want to see. And by the late 60s, the boomers are the young kids and they don't want to see Hello Dolly or Doctor yeah. Doolittle or the kinds they don't of want movies, to see road shows. right? The kind of movies that the old guard knew how to make, and then you get 
things like Bonnie and Clyde and things like Easy Rider that Hollywood and, and frankly, a lot of foreign films like Bicycle Thieves and, and the like that younger generation at the time loved and flocked to. And Hollywood was stymied. They didn't know how to, com- how to, how to create films for that market. But a younger generation of directors did, right? Scorsese did and Coppola really did. I mean, Coppola mm-hmm. was probably the best at it for a time. And so it felt like a good financial investment to say, you know, this is a director-driven film because that's why people bought tickets to go see the movie, right? Until the late 70s when it stopped being such a sure thing, right? 1941 was a big flop. That was Steven Spielberg. Reds lost an ungodly amount of money for Paramount. Um, This stopped seeing like a sure bet. And what started to seem like a sure bet were the actors. So so you just went from one kind of cost overrun to the next. Because now mm-hmm. you're giving Arnold Schwarzenegger or Bruce Willis or Julia Roberts or, you know. The Easy Rider Raging Bull theory is that Star Wars and Jaws with a wide release right. was what it would, it would guarantee more money and give you, your corporations would then find easier, like uh, what now we're at is like it just... What your yeah. qu- quarterly projections are going to match. But what I find fascinating is that the numbers in the 80s still stayed high, but suddenly they don't give a shit about if it's a director going over, over. Or they, they yeah, do, I but it's things like, um, I, again, we don't remember today, like Cotton Club or something like that. I think it's Popeye. a facile, stupid argument, to be honest. I didn't, I didn't like the book at the time. Look, Star Wars was a auteur film, right? It's It wasn't a blockbuster film. It was like released in 16 theaters. I mean, and I, frankly, I think it's why so many of the sequels suck, right? Because it wasn't designed to be a franchise. It, mm-hmm. It's one guy's you're, you're my vision. One of my frequent co-hosts, Ted Haycraft, still to this day says that that movie should have been one movie. Yeah, that's it, right? I mean, the, the problem is the narrative doesn't extend because it's an auteur thing right it's supposed to be that vague feeling of one chapter in many serials that you're only seeing the one yeah right and and you and it's amazing when that is because then you don't know where it came from and where it's going but you have but you but you have imagination right Mm -hmm. and the problem is after that there's no imagination left it's all spelled out stupidly for you um and you know spielberg was that uh jaws was a work of an auteur it was wildly successful but but it wasn't like all of a sudden everybody's like, oh, let's make big summer blockbusters. It was like, let's keep giving directors the tools because they're making us money. And then when they stop making money, all of a sudden, oh, if we give Julia Roberts a lot of money and she is the star, people will show up, right? And even that starts to stop. And then what ends up happening is everything becomes James Bond. That's my theory which is we live in a world now of James Bond. I, do, I don't know who said this, but uh, I've, I've gone strong with this, that the last great movies of the 70s are all movies made in the early 80s, that um, it's Heaven's Gate, 
uh, Brian De Palma's blowout yeah. and Peter Bogdanovich's uh, They All Laughed. Yeah. Yeah. And I would put Reds in there. I think Reds is 81, too, I think. Yeah. So. Reds is, God, Reds is so good. Um, yeah. Warren Beatty's what, Reds, if you haven't seen it. What I was getting to earlier with the um, Bach, so Bach bought the early, the the, the screenplay he bought, uh, speaking of auteurs, he brought, uh, bought the earlier version of the Johnson County War and he describes it in the book. And he basically describes the plot points as, in theory, if you're cutting down the movie, this is what it should be. And one cut, we've talked about the um, theatrical cut briefly, which, although we should definitely go back into because, like, I just watched that today and it was... The theatrical cut, the release cut, and then the Criterion Director's cut without the intermission. But the one cut I just watched for the first time a few days ago that I've been wanting to watch for years is available online only is director Steven Soderbergh did his own cut that he called The Butcher's Cut. Yeah. Did you did you get around to watching it? I've watched only a little bit of it, but it's great. Did you get to the end? I did not. No. Okay. The big in the big choices he made. But it starts off so much better. It, well, like, he, 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 he tried it. I almost got the vibe that he followed box description in the book yeah. of the bare, bare points. Cause he, you know, the orig- movie originally opened with that really great scene, which is Christopher Walken's intro in all versions of the movie. But he opens the movie with where Christopher Walken kills the Russian immigrant yeah. by shooting him through a, uh, through some hanging sheets. Yeah. But, uh, the real notable thing is at the ending. So, the idea that Isabel Huppert's character, Ella, dies at the end was a later draft thing before this Johnson County war draft that Box describing. In the big shootout in the house at the end, right? The, he cuts the shootout at the end. Yeah. He basically ends at the battle, and then he decides to go back to the prologue. Right. He goes to Harvard. The, he goes back to 1870 from there. And it in the movie ends with Blue Danube and John Hurd giving his or, or, oratory, and it just cuts out there at the end. Yeah, it's better. I mean, the, what you were saying earlier about the rhythms—the thing that, that always works for this movie—it's it's a similar to like all these long rhythms, you know, whether it's the the wedding sequence in Deer Hunter or the roller rink in Heaven's Gate. All this like. These movies have, Jamino kept calling them in the internal rhythms that were supposedly taken away by the director's cut. And even Bach admits, like, yes, I get it. They they just, I'm not sure it's worth three and a half hours. These work just because there's going to be one moment of transition where there's a surge of power. And like Heaven's Gate for me has two. One is whenever you go away from Harvard onto the train where you see Averall with like, beard in the future in the pretty immigrant train the other is ella dying at the end because if i haven't seen heaven's gate for a while i forget what happened to ella at the end and every version i mean seriously i watched this movie three times in three days every time that first gunshot is so loud and so startling and you've been lulled into this long rhythm and then after the battle like less than like three or four minutes after this huge epic battle scene, do you think you got a long epilogue ahead of you or something, or you're going to fall asleep till you till the credits or something? No, there's this violent gunshot that just like yeah. breaks your heart. And then Christopherson's Oh Ella is just such an amazing, heartbreaking line delivery too. And just that's how that for me is how Chimino works is like, I, I 
I wa- I mean, I watched multiple versions of this movie in the last three three days. Like one of the quotes I had from the really impressive. One of the quotes I had from the Bach book, uh, two actually, was um, he quotes Pauline Kael, and uh, Pauline Kael says, "While watching the three and a half, uh, three hour thirty nine minute Heaven's Gate, I thought it was easy to see what to cut, but when I tried afterward to think what to keep, my mind went break." So you know that they had suffered all this terrible press during production, which I think is profoundly unfair. Unfair to the film, unfair to Michael, and it gets back to what we were talking about. It's very facile and not that observant, too. Again, who gives a shit how much a movie costs? It doesn't cost you any more to go see it. They're not charging you $20 instead of $10, right? So what difference does it make? And why is everybody so up in arms about it? I've never understood it. I also never really understood why studios tell you the box office. Like, I don't like a movie more because it's made more money in a box office or less because it's bombed. Um, but we look at film now through the prism of business. It's like, so it's like, you know, art, art, at least in, or commerce, you know, entertainment of a movie is about whether or not it was a financial flop or not. And interestingly enough, streaming's kind of taken that away, right? Nobody really asks questions anymore about production costs and, but I think in some ways that's bad. We've lost a lot. I mean, COVID for sure. With movies. Right, 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 right. But so Stephen, after all of this terrible, terrible, terrible press and a year of post-production, right, um, where they were literally locked out of the editor room, like they were padlocks on the doors. They couldn't get in. There was it literally there were? Yeah. Like Michael wouldn't <laughs> let anybody anywhere near the editor room. He fired an editor. But the union wouldn't let him fire the editor, so the editor would just come in for work every day, just do an empty, you know, steam back. Um, and um, and so Michael came in. Stephen says uh, for the first screening for the studio, and David Field has left now. Um, David, who was Stephen's partner uh, in greenlighting the, the film originally. And he says, it's a little long, but I can easily cut 15 minutes, right? This is a great moment in the book. It's an astonishing moment. And the movie that he screened for them was five and a half hours long. And the battle sequence itself was longer than most motion pictures were that year. Just the battle sequence. I will say... I read. I first read this in college and reread it just a few days ago. I have a massive difference in the interpretation of what I thought was shocking in a post-production environment then in yeah. college versus now, where it's like that just seems quaint to me. There's so much in there that seems quaint. Uh, the quote was, and I think this is more def- like I think a great description of the theatrical cut, which I watched today was the picture was shorter, uh, clearer, and more watchable. But whether it was better. I didn't know. Chimino had been right to assert that he had built rhythms into the picture from the start of production, and they showed in the movement of a crane shot, the deliberation with which the actors walked or spoke. The recut epic was a masterful job of editing by Bill Reynolds, but there were odd moments where it seemed almost meager, like a man whose crash diet had left him with a baggy wardrobe or too tight, like a face lifted to a new and not quite natural configuration. And the thing is, anybody, any editor who's ever been tasked with the idea of cutting something down that's too long that the director won't cut down themselves yeah. knows exactly 
what this is when they watch the version just because like it's dialogue sequences where lines of dialogue they make them keep all the lines of dialogue in but they're tighter there's no spaces in between them except like one or two times where you put a space in just to make it seem like it's still real speech but the rhythms are just sped up in in the theatrical version it's a terrible injustice done to the film i mean you know the idea that you have i think the film was never really given a chance right because how how something is presented to you is in some way how you is some way how you're going to receive it. So, you know, you get the stories of massive cost overruns and this sort of Kurtz like figure out in the middle of Montana and it hits the theaters and, and, and they rushed it for Christmas, which they never ever should have done. You know, it was literally right out of the soup. And, you know, I don't think it was given a, a clean, fresh air, right? When it They, they was, seemed to freak out from those first reviews, from the longer version. Yeah, and those first reviews were, were unfair. I mean, the Vincent Canby review that the film is like a three and a half hour walking tour of your own living room. Uh, yeah, or, or in Bach even keeps pointing out, like, he, he Canby used the phrase disaster, and even Bach, who... I think one this rereading really made clear to me like he was just sick of the film by a certain point and oh, God, like was yeah. not you know and he was he's definitely not going to like this book is the narrative with which a lot of the everyone views this film and it's not the best one to look at it through just cuz he was he ha, he had to deal with Chimino constantly like yeah. promising something and like not delivering on a promise that that would lose block his job but like he even he says at one point he can be quoted as a disaster and he's like it's not a disaster oh the the thing well, first of all the thing about final cut as much as much as i love the book is the book's got almost nothing about filmmaking in it cuz steven really no, doesn't no steven's not on the set so it's all about back in los angeles right it's all about the business mechanics of it all um and what was happening in the boardroom and things like that. So, I mean, if you really love, it's a business book more than it is a filmmaking book. That's fair. That makes sense. And, but I think that's also typical of how Heaven's Gate for decades has been seen, right? It's the biggest flop. It's, it's a business folly and it's not. And again, I just keep coming back to this notion. Like when you go to, Rome, and you look at the Sistine. Do you sit there and say, "Well, how much did it cost the Pope for Michelangelo to make the Sistine Chapel?" Not that it's the Sistine Chapel, but still, like, it's the worst possible way to determine whether you like a movie or not. Which is, how much did it cost? I mean, it. You know, like when you read a book, do you sit there and say, "How many years did it take the author to write it?" Like, does it matter? I think, and and part of right now the enjoyment of Heaven's Gate. The, the big difference, so I watched the premiere version. I didn't rewatch the Criterion version, but over the last few years, I've watched that one. Yeah. Um, I like the, the John Kirk one with the intermission the most, the MGM. I like version. that in theory, and I, I think that's my favorite cut of this, but the one I feel like to recommend still is the Criterion just because it's the Blu ray. And like, uh, yeah, because. Zuman didn't seem like he was involved with it. Chimino, from what I read, sounded like he did a digital 4K master of it that was completely digital, and they got rid of a lot of the brown sepia into right. the movie that Zygma and Zygmunt wasn't really involved with it. But that being said, 
just to see a Blu-ray, a really pristine Blu-ray of this of this movie, you see all the money on screen and you see these painterly images. This is like a Barry Lyndon level of just like every shot of painting, just gorgeousity. Yeah, I, you know, I, I agree with that. I just love Vilmos so much and I think that he was so fundamental to the look uh, as, a, as the cinematographer. I still think the MGM DVD, which granted is not the same thing as the Blu-ray in terms of just kind of detail, as detail. The, the sepia look is really interesting though. Yeah, and I think yeah. if, I wonder if there was a Blu-ray restoration of that. I think might be my preferred version. Yeah, Michael, I don't think would have allowed that. Criterion sort of really brought Michael in, and they actually contacted me and said, you know, we would love the documentary, and then Michael killed that idea. He just absolutely what is he hated he hated any association with the book was I think the bottom line. I was going to ask, do you know what he thought of the book? He hated it. He hated it, and he hated Stephen because. You know, if you read the book, it's a it's an amazing story, and it is among the best books. I actually think it's the best book about the business of of movie making, right? I can't buy that. It's the best executive book. I, I think it's, I put it as like my, my top two uh, books about movie making. Uh, it and uh, Julie Sandman's Devil's Candy about the making of Von by um, the Vanities. Right. Those are the two. Like they're just so goddamn entertaining. They're Those great. are the books that are so much. Or Final Cut is not better than the movie, but uh, Devil's Candy is better than Bonfire of the Vanities. Yes, for sure, <laughs> for sure, for sure, for sure. Yeah, and Julie Solomon's book, as brilliant as it is, you know, she was still, she was a Wall Street Journal reporter, so she was something of an outsider. The thing about Final Cut is it is... Insider. It costs Stephen his life, right? So the author of the book pays a heavy price for the story. He is banished from Hollywood. He leaves Hollywood and he ends up going to Columbia and he becomes a biographer. He writes, he just starts writing. He, You know, Stephen died a, a couple of years ago after finishing his definitive Lenny Riefenstahl book. You know, he was living in Munich at the time. Um, so there's something about Heaven's Gate and Final Cut in that um, it, people who are associated pay a very, very, very heavy toll. You know, Christofferson uh, effectively stopped working you know, I mean, he was, he had done, um, Star was born and he, but, but he could, he didn't survive Heaven's Gate. Jeff Bridges did. Um, but really he was kind of it. But, and that's because I think people really love Jeff Bridges. Isabel Huppert, like, it's funny how she's aged well and like everyone there's there's this declaration of especially after a few years after that Verhoeven movie that she's still one of the best actresses in the world. I did find reading box descriptions of her early on be dad didn't age well. Um no. No terrible. And look, you know there was a huge fight for, over the casting of Isabelle Huppert. Right. They were like, "What the hell are we doing? This is not a star. This isn't bankable." Um, what's a French woman doing as a prostitute in the West? Which that's still it, oh, he in the in the, in your doc he kind of says that I I wrote that line down and I was just like 
this is a story about immigrants. It, it's 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 not yeah. beyond stretch. In the book, he fly, he does say Ella's not is a is an Anglo-Saxon name. Why would a French woman play that? But he describes her in the book as looking like a potato. And then when he met her in person, he says that she's just like the Pillsbury Doughboy. To her credit, when he finally starts seeing dailies, he's like she is the best. She's part of the best part of this movie, or the best cast part. She's of great this movie. in the movie. She's great in the movie. Oh my god! They were absolutely wrong. But what well, David, it goes back to that Harvey. It goes to the Harvey Weinstein thing for me of like he used to not cast women because he says like, would I want to fuck them? And it's just like he would describe certain women where just beyond the misogyny of the statement, you just want to be like, I don't agree with your aesthetic taste on this either. They are beautiful women. Like Isabel Huppert is just absolutely astoundingly gorgeous in this movie on top yeah. of being an amazing actress in it. Yeah. I don't know what Stephen, Stephen was gay. So I don't know what his motivation was. Uh, with, she looked like a potato to uh, him. She looked like a potato to him. You know, David Field would tell you that, and this is the way that it's told in my film and in the book, that the real um, outcome of the Isabel Huppert casting fight was that Michael won. Hmm. And he he stood up to David and to Stephen who wanted a more bankable U.S. star, right? They wanted someone like Jane Fonda in the role at the or time. Or Diane Keaton they keep mentioning. Or Diane Keaton they keep mentioning, right? And, and, um, and Michael didn't. Uh, and he won, and he won because the executives at Universe at U, UA didn't back Stephen and David, and they didn't back him because they thought that Isabella Huppert was going to have box office in the international market, and so it was just an entirely a bean counter decision. And after that, David Field is convinced that it's that Michael just stopped listening to anybody saying no to anything. And that's when the cost overruns really went out of control. Um, okay, I got I, I'm, I got a few more questions. I got one big wind down question, but uh, first, go into the book. Are you familiar with the C? Okay, uh, Bach outlines uh, five options whenever the movie starts going out of control. He outlines these five options of what they can do. Option one is based on um, Cleopatra, where they could right. just keep letting him spend money. Option two is based on Apocalypse Now, which they just did, where they, I forget who they wanted to send, whether it was David Fields or not, or who, that just basically to redo the budget, which to be fair is kind of what they ended up doing after a right. certain point. But his model of that is that Coppola was receptive and Coppola dealt with these acts of God between Martin Sheen's heart attack and the typhoon in the Philippines. Option three was... Right, the, the option, the the... Apocalypse Now option was to somehow snatch victory from the jaws of defeat. Okay. That was, because Apocalypse Now was. Was it a success for them in a year? Oh, it was a huge success. And uh, it was also a wildly, wildly, wildly expensive production that, you know, one of the great documentaries, by the way, ever made about. Heart of Darkness. Yeah. Holy shit, man. Is that a great film? Um, the option three was based on the Von Stroheim movie. Is it Sweet Angel? Yeah. Where it was basically abandoned. And it's the movie that shows up in uh, Sunset Boulevard where right. Gloria Swanham is watching like her other movie. Um, option four is to sell it to another studio, which early on, um, because uh, um, Chimino has a relationship with EMI 
and um which is yeah warner's also excited about the movie he keeps saying he's going to sell it to him it becomes a big drama point but option five is the one i want to talk to you about because it's this interesting point in the book that's always obsessed that's always intrigued me option five is to fire chimino and hire another director right so there's a scene in the book where bach goes to another director he meets him in malibu the director's working on a movie and they go through a conversation about what's going on um, Bach has this line of after seeing the dailies that he sells everyone on the movie that it's like David Lean made a western and he he changes it for this director to say it's like you made a western but my question is do you have an idea who the director is yeah god I, I wish you would ask I, me I, ha- I have a I have an idea but I want to hear yours first um, he mentions that um, uh, it's a famous director the guy smokes a cigar uh, he's in post-production on a movie around 1979. He's made movies for uh, UA, and he lived in Al- Malibu. He's an Oscar winner, or he worked on an Oscar-winning movie. I'm, I'm assuming it's a he. It is. And he... God, he told me this who it was uh, years ago. I can't remember. Who do you think it is, and I'll tell you if you're right. Norman Jewison. It is. Correct. Yes. That okay, is correct. The detail I thought that sealed it was he says that he replaced another world-famous director... And uh, Jewison replaced Sam Peckinpah on the Cincinnati Kid. And I'm right. like, I think I got it. I... Right. That is correct. That is 100% correct. Oh, wow. Wow, Michael. You just made... <laughs> wow. I'm glad to hear that. That's amazing. And Jewison turned him down. Yeah, because he, he does that really cool stuff where he's like, I can't be hearing this. And then Box like... Yeah, because no, there's a whole set of rules for the Director's Guild, right? Right. Where you are not allowed to have that conversation unless the director has already been fired because the studio can't fire director thinking that there's somebody waiting in the wings. I guess that makes sense. Um, You're not allowed to undermine somebody else in your guild. You don't undermine your own. Yeah. I think this book is just kind of a, um, look, that's a, you know, so Jewison situation, I guess what you would call it. Right. But Jewison would have been, had, had that been made public at the time that he would have, been sanctioned by the director's guild and he wouldn't have because he didn't do anything wrong but but whatever. there's not a lot of great stories of um directors replacing other directors that worked out for everybody too um no. god no no no. i no, would no. be remiss i want to i think uh bach also details the real history and he has this love-hate relationship with pointing out where chimino defied history although he used real characters names uh avril was um a general store owner uh, who maybe went to Cornell and he was maybe common law married to Ella, uh, who was not French, but was from Kansas. Uh, they both got lynched, uh, because Avril, uh, wrote to the newspapers complaining about the land situation. Nate was actually killed. He was an association cowboy who may have become an outlaw. Um, but the character played by Mickey Rourke, Nick Ray, those were the actually only two people that were killed in the Johnson County war. The Johnson right. County War was not a war. What happened was when they brought the people in, I think the uh, the Johnson County members that were on the list surrounded them in like a hotel or something. Uh, Canton was a former Johnson County sheriff who was uh, got thrown out and was pissed off. Uh, Walcott, the uh, captain, the uh, the uh, military guy that was friends with the president, he might have actually started the war in the first place because it was based on unpaid debts in Britain. Um, uh, Billy played by John Hurt, 
was an Easterner, but uh, he's involved in Wyoming Republican uh, politics. And again, no war. There no was war. no battle. At yeah, the, the Johnson end. County War was no war. But that's okay. It's Hollywood, man. When you get to that battle at the end, it hit me even today watching uh, the theatrical cut. I, I, I was late. It's three, three movies and three, t- three, watching this three times in three days. And, the, yeah, and like the theatrical cut still kind of worked for, ish for me. But like when you get to the battle at the end, you watch how just like immaculate and astonishing that filmmaking in the battle is. How can you call that a disaster? How can you be like a Look, critics just, yeah. I don't get it. I'm very grateful that that movie is made. I urge people if they haven't seen it to go see it and to not concern themselves with the cost of the production or the story. I mean, the story is, it's a great freaking story. It's a great story about it, you know, all the machinations, but you know, I keep coming like, who cares either the, and it works or it doesn't work. And if you walk in, to anything being told, oh, this is a disaster. It's a financial disaster. It cost the studio this. It cost these people. You know, it ended an era of director-driven films. Um, I mean, it's going to color how you see it. And I and I don't think it's fair. Look, I mean, I think what ended the, the director-driven is not Jaws. And it isn't Star Wars. It's the fact that by the late 70s, early 80s, these films were incredibly expensive to make and audiences were not showing up but they were showing up for actors and but look that era ended right there was a moment when you knew you would pay someone 25 million dollars because they could deliver an opening weekend box office but then eventually eddie murphy made pluto nash right so he went from beverly hills cop to pluto nash Edited by a former guest on this podcast, Paul Hirsch. Yeah. So I, I bring up multiple, multiple episodes. Right. Like, and, you know, so it no longer made sense. And so Hollywood only cares about the sure thing. If I'm going to invest in a movie, am I going to get my money back? Am I going to make money? And and I'm of the opinion that out of this whole era, the model that ended up surviving was James Bond, which is serialized endlessly and it does not really in the end matter who plays James Bond, right? So you have one James Bond with Sean Connery. You have another James Bond with Roger Moore. Today you have Daniel Craig, who I absolutely adore as James Bond, right? Mm -hmm. It's like Batman, right? There's a million different Batmans out there and it doesn't really matter because it's always Batman. Um, so either it's a good Batman movie or it's a lousy Batman movie. Um, but it, it almost doesn't matter who the actor is playing Batman, right? You, 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 we can argue it back and forth, but you'll still go because it's Spider-Man. Um, right. There are three, three different Spider-Mans, right? Uh, so far. Tobey Maguire, Andrew Garfield, and, um, oh, the current Marvel one. Um, Right. Uh, Tom What's Holland. His name. Tom. Tom Holland. Tom Holland. Okay. So, not, not to forget the guy from the 70s TV show. Right. But the point is, is that it's Spider-Man, 
right? So either you like some or you dislike others, but it's that's the model now that Hollywood's got. Yeah. Because I don't have to bank on Tom Holland every single time. Like if he goes away, I'll just cast somebody else as Spider-Man. Uh, the weird the weird following is like um and it comes from the comic book iteration of these serializations where like your writers and your creators, your you know, artists or your directors are only part of the puzzle, but the editors and then the people involved are the ones that are constantly rebooting this whenever sales yeah. go down. And like it, that format is going to um, the movies right now. That is to me the great tragedy of Chimino, which is that if you make movies and do, right, y- you need a collaborator. You need to be open to another voice, either on set or, or really in the edit room, to say this isn't working or this could be better. You know, I'm not sure the Scorsese would be Scorsese without Thelma Schumacher. And I don't think Martin Scorsese would, would just disagree with that, right? right? She's a genius. She's brilliant at filmmaking. And Coppola, you know, the same. Um, Walter Murch is a breathtaking filmmaker, yeah. right? Uh, he's an editor, but he's a filmmaker. He's... I think as much an auteur as any director. And I think that Michael didn't listen to anybody and he needed, it didn't matter. He had Vilmos on set and that was great. But you know, the difference with the deer hunter is that I think he had De Niro and he didn't have somebody who he was a little bit afraid of, who he wasn't really, you know, who who was higher on the pecking order than him. And in post-production, he didn't have anybody. He didn't collaborate. And if you don't collaborate, you're not really tight. Okay. Um, I wanted to wind... I have a question coming out of this, but I didn't want to wind down. Um, best iteration of the movie for you. Um, for me, I think it's um, it's got to be a combo after watching these last three days. my I, I totally did, completely forgot to tell you uh, when we're going back to my history of uh, watching the movie. Um, this is going to... Sorry, this is going to be a long walk. But uh, when I was... Uh, I, I, I don't like smoking pot or anything like that, but a few months ago I put in the criteria and took an edible and oh. I've been trying that with random movies lately. And that's interesting. I thought, but, but here's the funny thing. I thought it was the greatest movie of all time. And I asked my pothead friends, like, does this happen to you all the time? Do you think every movie's great? And they're like, no. And I said, do you think the, the heaven's gate is the greatest movie ever? And they're like, no. And then I realized it wasn't the edible that made the difference. It was that I turned on the subtitles. Yes. Oh, we haven't talked about that for yeah. sure. Yeah. And it really, it, there was a, there was the moment where. Um, That's a huge problem with the film. Where Nate huge. and uh, Avril have like their confrontation. I think one of their first confrontations. And Nate says, like, you act like a man with a paper asshole. And then Avril's like, you've been stretching your legs under my table too long. And those two lines together while I was kind of high was like, this is the greatest movie ever. My best version of this movie is the theatrical really overcompensated with trying to clarify dialogue into yeah. the fact where the line sounded dubbed on top of the fact that like these, the, the rhythm of this movie felt too tightly cut, maybe tightish cut. Um, it felt like all the lines were dubbed. And I think my best version of the movie would be the premiere version with the intermission with clear to watch for the first time would be with the clarity of those that that dialogue emphasis version of it where the soundtrack and the lines were heard 
Right. But that's the John Kirk restoration version. Yeah, I think that's the best cut, or what was shown at the premiere, basically. Um, this gets right. to an idea that I've had lately, though, that and it's the way I've been enjoying Heaven's Gate the last few years, is that a long movie, a really long movie, once you don't feel like you have to commit that period of time, um, you can watch it in chunks, you know what's going to happen with the movie, or even if you have to sit and watch it all the way through, just as long as you know when the ending's coming and how, what you have left, like really long movies are always better the second or third time if you know there's actual quality to them. One real distinct screening I had a few years ago was watching Tarkovsky's uh, Stalker the second mm. time. And I'm a big Tarkovsky fan, but the first time like was a chore. And the second time, I remember thinking it was super short, super entertaining. And it's it's a Tarkovsky movie. Like, Solaris. And, I mean, it, it, yeah. Solaris, man. Yeah, I mean, all these... the the. Watching them a second time when you don't have to feel that like, you know, watching your watch, when am I getting out of the theater? When the you know like you can of, enjoy it. Yeah, or the burden of just, you know, what am I supposed to be thinking, right? Mm. Something that's received, received wisdom where you can decide for yourself. Yeah, you know you know what's going to happen. Right. Um, I think you're right about the audio, by the way. I mean, I think... You know, if you're a young filmmaker or an older filmmaker, people do not think about audio anywhere near enough. Anywhere near enough. Sound design, dialogue. I mean, it's gotten better now, right? Because everybody's got a 5-1 at home or soundbar or something like that. Right, so right, even, right. you know. But yeah, no, the, the, the audio is a huge barrier for that film. I mean, just it's... You just can't hear the dialogue for the first theatrical cut. It's impossible. When I watched the um, cut the other night, I watched it with my uh, my mom and or my stepmom and my dad, and I think I'd seen Heaven's Gate maybe six times by this point, five or six times. It was the first viewing I actually knew that Avril was the marshal of Johnson County. Right. I saw. Yeah, and and my stepmom asked me, "What is he doing?" I was like, "I think he's sheriff." Right. Like, you you really do get through this movie like. It was nice watching this many times in these many days where it's like, oh, he's whipping the mayor and the mayor's firing him. And like, yeah. it's a basic thing you get. Clarity in editing is such a, it's a reason why these the process takes so many months. You're just trying to like make sure the audience get the details without feeling like the details are being forced down their throats. But when an audience has to watch a scene and they don't know whose relationship is to what to other characters, it becomes in this level of frustration where people then turn around. They don't say, I didn't understand this relationship. They say the movie didn't work for me or the movie left me cold. And these things can be fixed, you know, which the theatrical cut does a lot to work, but it does it in these off lines. Like I mentioned earlier, my favorite cut being Avril from uh, Harvard to Montana or to Wyoming. The the Soderbergh. It's a brilliant. No, no, no. In the theatrical, there's a line of voiceover over it. They do that thing that like, you know, Apocalypse Now uh, really started and Blade Runner kind of did where it's like, uh oh, movies in trouble. People don't understand anything. Write yeah, a voiceover right, for it. Right. String everything together with the images with the Tell voiceover. People. Tell people. Yeah, I mean, listen, I'm uh, in. You know, I would say, for me, I, I loved Vilmos as a cinematographer, just over and over and over again. So, the most pristine version that has his vision in it is for me, the one that I always hold dear, which is the restoration that was done 
20 odd. Did no. you see a print of it or? No, they never did a print. They did a digital intermediary. So they had a negative. So that's there was what a you would have saw with playing with uh, whenever your movie was playing. Yeah. Final Cut exactly. was playing. Yeah, it was a digital intermediary at the time. I, I still, that still would have been something to see though. Yeah. And Bill, and look, I mean, the Polaroids and to see what he was going for and what his vision was. And I think that that, it's just, it's a work of art and um, still has the intermission in it. So my last question is, um, what do you think, it's a, it's a, it's, it's a broad question. What do you think would have happened if uh, Heaven's Gate had, in, in um, Tomino's intended version, had either saved face or made money what if it was not this movie that brought down ua because the thing the tragedy to me the thing that i did find kind of resentful about the book being the framing of the story on top of the idea that the new york press narrative of this was the movie that took down a ua was that chimino above all things he was like he he was spending money to make something that lasted and so yeah. maybe maybe he had a talent in spending other people's money, but at the same time, he made stuff that he would could have made more stuff that lasted. Well, he didn't put it in his pocket for sure. He made a movie and he dedicated himself for two years to making the best goddamn movie that he could make. I you know I felt I came away feeling like the failure was inevitable because they lost control of the narrative, and you know. You look at a political campaign, right? When you lose control of the narrative or where there's a vacuum and it's filled by somebody else, you're doomed. And it's not just that you have to be a good storyteller in the actual film you're making and the story you're telling. You have to control the narrative of your own life Hmm. as well. And Michael was, and Stephen, were terrible at it. They were just terrible at it. So when Michael had an opportunity to resurrect the film when it came out and he went on the Today Show and he did all these things, he was awful at it. And he was even awful with me. Like, I love the movie and I, I got MGM to restore it for the first time in 20 years and he wouldn't talk to me. And eventually you're like, dude, this is why it failed, right? Which is you have to... I don't want to say suck up to me, but you if you don't tell your story, if you leave a vacuum, someone like Stephen Bach's going to fill it, right? With something else right. other than what you want or Rona Barrett or, you know, some Vincent Camby or somebody else. And, and you know, what Michael needed to say was, who cares what it cost or how long it took to make it's still the ticket price is the same. Go enjoy the movie. I'm not charging you anymore. UA isn't charging you anymore. And stop asking yourselves, you know, it's you're, it, it's not like you're buying a work of art that you're hanging in your house or your apartment, right? You, you, it's not like a bowl that you're buying at a at Ikea, right? And you're looking at the price and, you know, that bowl is more expensive. It's it's a movie and it doesn't matter how much it get, it costs to make. And I'm of the opinion that what sundered uh, Heaven's Gate ended up really costing us something profound in American movie making. Because for generations we became obsessed 
with the business of movie making rather than movie making itself and storytelling and the art of it. And it's a very American story, right? We're obsessed with money. We're obsessed with worth comes from how much money you have or how quickly you've grown your stupid Silicon Valley app startup thing or whatever the stupid thing is. And in fact, we, I think as a society, think people have more worth if they have more money, right? And yeah. and and there should be some place where that, I mean, like I don't care in business, right? I mean, if you want to say, oh, you're, you know, somebody's more successful on Wall Street because they've made more money, like fine, like whatever. Or in Silicon Valley, like whatever. But don't take that into art, right? And I grant you that Hollywood is is a business, right? And I want to overly romanticize it. It's a business, right? They don't make movies for charity, right? They make movies to make money. I think, but part of my thing that bugs the shit out of me, like that movies that this illustrates is that a lot of like that first wave of press about box office and what the effects were for at least a good 20, 30 years to a certain extent today is so goddamn short term. It's about what like this movie did the week after it came out. And this oh, is a Heaven's yeah. Gate is a movie that lasts. Who who knows what anybody's movie was opening weekend anymore? I mean, look, Star Wars opening weekend sucked, right? It opened up in no movie theaters. I mean, right. It 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 it's a totally, uh, you know, I was Star Wars came out what seventy seven, right? So yeah, I remember going to see it three times that summer. My parents thought I was absolutely insane. I was I was really 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 young, right? Um, I saw that in Annie Hall endlessly. <laughs> uh, and they really sort of set my taste in movies forever. Um, but the, th- the emotional thrill as a young kid, like barely 10 of seeing star Wars in the movie, it was just so transformed. I mean, it was just moved you away. Or like when I remember leaving the theater, seeing, Reds, right? Or any number of movies over the years. I mean, last couple of years, last time when I saw Parasite, you know, walking out of the movie theater. And I do have to ask you, what is it like seeing Annie Hall at 10? It was great because my parents, my parents decided that I was ready to see an adult movie. And so the adult movie they were going to take me to was Annie Hall. You know nothing of my work. Yeah. I mean, I, there's, so, the, you know, Marshall McLuhan, man. Marshall McLuhan. I remember obviously the cocaine sneezing into it and her getting a teddy for her birthday because I was 10 years old, right? And there was a lot of crap that I missed that I got later and later and later. Um, But I I mean, look, I know he's forbidden now, but man, I love that that guy for, I loved, I mean, you know, love and death to me is like... It's the, it's that, it's like the, it's like his version of Revolver, right? It's in between the pure Beatlemania and, 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 you know, Sergeant Pepper. It's like that sweet spot of funny and smart. Um, I love Love and Death. I love that movie. Um, So you mentioned Final Cut has issues with, your film Final Cut has issues with the clip. So is why is it probably not on DVD? Um, Yeah. 
what are is there anything else you're working on right now or anything else that you wanted to push right um well i haven't done um uh anything about movies for a very 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 long time um okay i did a couple films for american masters um uh but like a generation ago like forever ago so uh if people want to see my li- my most recent film which is already at this point a couple of years old uh netflix has um is streaming for another year or two years i think i, I forget how long the, the license is uh above us only sky which is about john lennon and the making of the imagine lp um i watched, I, I wa- I watched that that's me i um, didn't know that was you that was me so i, I have a second uh, that's the second film i did about john the first one was called lennon nyc so uh, that was the one where I got to meet and uh, I don't want to say befriend, but got to know Yoko and earn her trust. And so uh, Bubba's Only Sky is about a year in, in the life of after the Beatles broke up while John was making his second solo album, Imagine. And I was given um, this trove of never before seen home movies of John and Yoko uh, in the studio and in Tittenhurst Park to, to make. And my my Chimino obsession is I spent 15 years of my life reporting and filming what ended up being the longest and most expensive um, criminal investigation in U.S. military history that ended up documenting a massive government cover-up. Um, and so it's a podcast now because well, the film was made, but it was too much for anybody to want to distribute um so we we went to tribeca with it it it's it's my version i think the final cut it broke my heart or my version of of evans gate i should say but the podcast did really well it's everywhere like all podcasts right spotify apple whatever it's called murder in house two um and it's about my journey into the abyss of the military justice system and and this one guy, Frank Wooderich, who was charged in something called the Haditha Massacre with mass murder. He was charged with 18 counts of murder, many of them women and children. And I found a way to get into his criminal defense team and, and document, film it all, without the government knowing or being able to access the footage I was shooting. And the kicker is, this thing went on for years and Frank was for a while, you know, facing life in prison and was being charged with this just horrible crime. And he couldn't remember whether he had committed it or not. He, he, he told us over and over again, in all fairness, that he, he absolutely didn't do it. But when he was pressed, what happened in the bedroom where all these children were lined up and executed, he couldn't remember. So that's the podcast. That is some in cold blood shit there. Yeah, it is. Um, it's called Murder in House 2. It's up on Apple and Spotify and at Google and whatever. Acast. Michael Epstein, thank you so much for being on the podcast. It was a lot of fun. Uh, yeah, um I'm glad yeah, this move I'm glad you're you're still selling uh, fighting the good fight of getting this movie seen and watched by more yes. people. People should go see it. Shane, thanks very much and um and Reds and all these other movies that we talked about. Reds. Man, for yep. sure. Go, go, go enjoy it. <laughs>